0: Well, first off, Happy Mother's Day, and uh, we appreciate very much the way that you guys, as the past few weeks, have shown your love to us and my wife um, specifically. The cards, the gifts, the the meals, especially. Um, really so... meal. really meal. <laughs> David, sit down. It's my turn. <laughs> As a matter of fact, it was a little difficult to button my britches this morning, so um, I appreciate the meals. And really, just the love this church has been so good to us. Um, it really is home for us, and I, it's a pleasure to be back in this pulpit. So as we look at God's Word this morning, if you don't mind opening your Bible to Exodus chapter 20, we are going to be bouncing around, but not too much. Um, normally, when I preach, it's an expositional sermon. This is what I like to call a positional sermon. Uh, exposition on a topic. And so, as we look at Exodus chapter 20, we're going to be covering the concept of idolatry. It's not typically your Mother's Day sermon. Um, and I apologize for that, but this is where we are. And so, when I'm thinking through idolatry and the thesis for today, or the topic for today, is that we become essentially what we worship. And we are born to imitate. Every single one of us were born to imitate. When I look at my kids, my daughters especially, I see them imitating their mother, especially in this time with a new baby. The girls, will Caroline and Catherine, will go and look for their baby dolls. They'll wrap their baby dolls up. They'll, They'll comb their baby doll's hair. They'll rock them to sleep and put them down and wrap them and swaddle them just like their mother. They're seeing what she's doing. And they're caring for them in the way that they see her do. And so therefore they are imitating her. And I think back to my teenage years and some of the ways that I used to imitate those around me. um, And I'm, to be honest with you, I'm a little embarrassed by it. Uh, We, in the desire to be accepted by the group, we do some very weird things as teenagers. Uh, We are style of dress. No guys who got earrings who greatly regretted it. Um, Remember wearing specific type of hats or um, for some of you guys, it may have been bell-bottom jeans. Uh, For some... Who knows, it may have been the music you were listening to was adopted because your peers were doing that exact same thing. And so we want to be part of it, and we imitate those who we are around. We imitate by nature. God created us to reflect. He really did. When we look at the scripture and we look at Genesis chapter 1, it's assumed that we will be reflecting his glory. We always reflect. Every single one of us, we always imitate. But the question is, what do we imitate we reflect and we imitate consciously or we do it unconsciously but we are always imitating and at the core of who we are we are imitators we will always be imitators we will always imitate something whether it's in creation or it is our creator and so when we look at exodus chapter 20 we begin with a definition of what idolatry actually is if you look with me we'll start in verse 1 it says, And God spoke these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You notice that phrase, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. That is going to be key in a few moments here. It says, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, Am a jealous God. So when we read this, the first thing that we think of is the tangible idols, the tangible images or statues that the nations around Israel would have carried. And so when we look at this, there's a big, a lot of background information. And I'll try not to bore you with a PhD level uh, background information about ancient Near Eastern cosmology. I know some of you are already going to sleep. But when we look at the ancient Near East and we look at the world around Israel, we see some very interesting things that took place in their in their view of the of the pantheon of gods and how that incorporated itself into Israel. When you look at Babylon, there's a text called the Epic of Gilgamesh, and in the Epic of Gilgamesh, uh, you see how the gods function. And the gods in this in this this world are capricious. The gods in this this world, this Epic of Gilgamesh, are are selfish. And you see a battle between, in, in another, another um, uh, Assyrian text, you see a battle in what's, in, the text is called Enuma Elish, if you want to go look it up. And some of you who have seen the movie Eternals will recognize some of these terms. You see the god, goddess named Tiamat, having a battle with the god Marduk, and Marduk defeats Tiamat, buries her body, and with her body he creates the land. And so, as a result of his wounds, blood is falling, and all of the other gods are created. And these gods are in constant competition with each other for first place. And you see these gods, they emphasize or manifest themselves in creation, manifest themselves in the natural world. And so, you have a god like the Canaanite god Baal. Who is technically the storm god, and so Baal would would manifest himself in the storm, but they wouldn't view Baal simply as the storm god. They would view the storm as Baal himself. Baal himself. Sorry, sorry. Spanish started coming out in a second. Second there. <laughs> Apologize. I almost said perdón. Um, So they would see Baal himself as the storm. And so there was continuity between these gods and nature. They were manifest or they were were something in nature. And so when someone would create an idol, They would make this. They would form it out of out of uh, out of stone, or they'd form it out of wood and overlay it with gold or silver, whatever it is. And they'd place it there, and they start worshiping it. They're not worshiping just this stick thing that they've made, this this image that they've made. They believe that this god comes down and inhabits that idol because there is continuity between the two. And so, whenever they offer sacrifices to this god. They place down food for this God, or they 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 burn sacrifices. The f- smoke that goes up is now what is feeding that God, and the worship is what gives that God power and so after the in Enuma-lis, after the flood takes place, and the person who um, survives the flood. Offers a sacrifice because it, it does parallel scripture a little bit with the, with a with a flood story and one who survives and this one who survives offers this sacrifice and it, the 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 text the the Babylon or the Assyrian text describes the gods coming in like flies to garbage because they are so hungry they have been without food for a matter of weeks and then at the same time when you look at the reason why they sent the flood the God sent the flood. Because they were angry with people because of the noise. It was too noisy. We can't sleep. We can't, we can't function because it's so noisy. So we are, in our selfish, capricious way, going to send a flood and kill everybody. But then all of a sudden, they start losing their power and they're hungry because they don't have anything to eat. And so that's the way that people were thinking in that, in that day and age. The idol contained the presence of God. And if you wanted something from that God, you would come and you would offer a sacrifice. So that way, Baal, for example, would bring more water, bring floods, bring, bring rain, so that way you can have a harvest. Or if the God was, was punishing you, you would then withhold your sacrifice to try to manipulate that God to stop the flood to stop the excess of water, to stop the rain, because there's too much. And so that God is really dependent upon human action. And when we look at this text here, it says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make an idol or likeness of anything created in the world. What we're seeing here is that God is basically saying, you cannot create an image for me because I don't function like those gods. You can't create an image for Yahweh and worship that image and manipulate Yahweh in the same way that they would manipulate Ra, the sun god. Or the same way that they would manipulate any of the pantheon of gods of Egypt, Babylon, or Assyria, or Canaan. You can't create an image of Yahweh. And it was prohibited because first, God didn't reveal himself in an image. He didn't give himself an image in order to be worshiped. And to worship him through an image is idolatry. And so God is also transcendent. Where the gods of the ancient Near Eastern world were part of nature and you worship them through nature, our God is transcendent. He is separate from nature. He is not a part of nature. He is, you can see his glory in nature, but you, our God is not the tree. He's the creator of the tree, but he is not the tree. And so God is not this world, and He cannot be identified with the world, nor can He be manipulated through the world, like these ancient Near Eastern gods. And so God is also distinct. He is not the gods of the He is not like the gods of the neighboring nations. And worshiping a part of creation is robbing God of His glory. He is the only being that deserves glory. And so when you look at Isaiah chapter 42, verse eight, don't go there, or Isaiah 48, 11, God says, I am the Lord, there is no other. I will not share my glory with another. I will not share my glory with created images. God will not share his glory with anybody else, with anything else. God alone deserves the glory. And so idolatry essentially is substituting God as the object of worship. It's essentially substituting God and taking God's glory and giving it to something else, something in creation, or something we see in ourselves, as we'll see in a moment here. And so when we look at this text and it says, you shall not have no other gods before me, first off, that is referring to the other gods of the nation. He wants exclusive worship, worshiping him alone. No other. There's that exclusivity to Christianity, exclusivity to Yahweh worship. And he says, you shall not make for yourselves a carved image. You can't worship me through images. You can't worship me through any of the ways that you worship these other gods. He is different. Now, I'd love to say that the nation of Israel grasped this right off the bat. They didn't. And they actually struggled with it throughout their entire history. And if you go to Exodus chapter 32... With me, it's just a couple of pages over, probably 10 or 15 pages to your right. If you go to Exodus chapter 32, you would find what is called the golden calf incident or the, the golden calf story. And this is after Moses has gone up to Mount Sinai and he is receiving the law. And while God is writing the Ten Commandments, inscribing it with his very finger on the stone tablets, Israel down on the bottom is violating those commandments at the exact same time. And so when we look at this and we see starting in verse 1, it says, When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. Now this term gods here is, the word is Elohim. I'm sure you've probably heard that if you've heard any Genesis studies. Elohim is a plural for God. It's not, And it is used for God or Yahweh in Genesis chapter one. Elohim is the term that we use for God. When you read Genesis chapter one, you see Elohim. When you go to chapter two of Genesis, you see Yahweh. And so it is a term that is used for the Lord that we worship. And so when they say, make us gods, Is translated here with a little g, O D S. I would argue that this should be translated as God. Make us an image for Yahweh. Make us an image for Elohim. Make us Elohim. Make us gods who shall go up before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So we've got this new God, because you remember, Egypt, Israel was in Egypt for 400 years. So long that they had actually forgotten who God was. They had forgotten who Yahweh was. And so when God comes in and he rescues them and he takes them out of Egypt, they have been in Egypt so long that they resemble more of Egypt than they do of the children of Israel. And the 40 years in the desert is really time spent getting the Egypt out of Israel. And so as they're, as they're coming out, they have spent so much time worshiping and being involved with these other, the, the theology of Egypt that they adopt this theology and they put it into their Yahweh worship. And so they say, make us gods. We don't know what's happened, happened to, to Moses. And so Aaron said, take off the rings of gold that are in your ears. Of your are then in the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So they took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron, and he received the gold from, the, from their hand, and fashioned it with a graving tool, and made a golden calf. Now a calf is very interesting here because there is no parallel in Egypt cosmolo, Egyptian cosmology, or no parallel in Egyptian religion, we'll say it that way, for a calf. There is no God that manifests himself as a calf or as a, as a cow in Egypt. And so to say, here's your God, where, where would they have gotten this idea of a cow? Where would they have gotten this idea of a calf? And so when, Mo, when Aaron saw this, he built the altar and he, he made a proclamation saying, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord, capital L-O-R-D in the ESV. That term is Yahweh. Tomorrow will be a feast to Yahweh. So they just requested that they make a, a, an idol to Elohim, the gods, as it's translated in, in the ESV. But then at the very end of it, after creating this idol, after creating this golden calf, Aaron says this will be a feast. Tomorrow we're going to celebrate this idol by having a feast to Yahweh. So what are they doing here? They're creating an image for Yahweh. They're going to have a feast and celebrate it. And so they rose up early the next morning, offered burnt offerings, and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and rose up to play. And Moses and the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people, to, or go down for your people who you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves, and they have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden cap and worshiped it and sacrificed to it. And they said, these are your gods, these are your Elohim, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. Remember what Exodus 20 verse 1 says, or verse 2, I mean, says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And so now he's saying, this is your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. They don't know how to worship Elohim. They don't know how to worship Yahweh. They've come out of Egypt and they just borrow what they had before. They borrowed from Egyptian religion and adopted it and placed it on the worship of Yahweh. And so now they're worshiping Yahweh in the, way that the only way that they know how, which is through sacrificing to an idol. And this text here really highlights the distinctiveness of the Lord and highlights the distinctiveness of Yahweh, he is saying, I cannot be worshiped in that way. I cannot, you cannot mix worship of Yahweh with worship of other gods, with worship of anything else. You cannot take theology from other aspects of the world and incorporate it with worship of him. And so when we look at this, what I will argue is that idolatry mixes worship of the Lord with worship of self. Idolatry is mixing the worship of God, the only one who deserves glory, the only one who deserves worship, with the worship of ourselves. Just as the nation of Israel worshiped God through mixing it with the worship of the Egyptian gods. And so an example of this, just thinking through this for a moment of how do we worship ourselves as we worship God would be the concept of materialism. We think of materialism in terms of the love for money or the love for things. Well, I would say that it's more than that. I would say that it's different than that. It would be finding value or finding your identity, finding your peace, finding your security in the material things. It's more than just loving it. It's finding your identity in that instead of finding it in Christ. And so we don't always stop worshiping God. Instead, when we're materialistic, God becomes a tool for getting what we truly want. We say, well, I'm going to give this money so that way God will bless me. I serve as a Sunday school teacher and I do all these things and I know that God is going to bless me with the house that we desire. God and service of him has now become nothing more than a manipulative tool in order to accomplish what we truly want. And so just as you manipulate God to get money, you will manipulate others with that money. You will view money as power. And that will permeate your view of the church. You'll think that your wealth makes your opinion matter more. And then it becomes giving with strings attached or withholding your giving in order to get what you want. And it's not serving the Lord, but it's serving self-interest. And so when we look at what nation of Israel did here in Exodus 32, when we think about modern parallels, we see that we... Essentially, treat God the exact same way, borrowing from the world and adopting that and placing it on our worship of the Lord and not approaching Him in the way that He has called for. We imitate that which is around us. So let's go to Psalm 115 for a moment. Psalm 115, and we'll see the effect of idolatry on the idolater. The effect of idolatry on the idolater. Psalm 115. The way that it speaks here is very common. We find this same type of language throughout the Old Testament, throughout the prophets specifically, when it talks about being deaf and blind. And we see it with Christ, referring back to Isaiah 6, 9, when he, is, when he speaks to the Pharisees. We see it also with Paul and James talking about the spiritual blindness and the spiritual uh, deafness. And so let's look at this. Psalm 115, verse four, says their idols are silver." and gold the work of human hands they have mouths but do not speak and eyes but do not see they have ears but do not hear noses but do not smell they have hands but do not feel but do not walk and they do not make a sound in their throat that's what these idols that's what these statues are they have these hands they have eyes they have ears but they can't do anything now look what it says in verse 8 this is very interesting it says those who make them become like them Those who make idols, those who worship idols become like the idols. They become essentially what they worship. And so if you worship, for example, if materialism is your idol and you love money, you will become like the money. Really, without ears to hear, without eyes to see, an inanimate object yes there's power that comes with money yes there's 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 things you can do with that but that is where it ends and so when we look at this and we see it says those who become like them or those who make them become like them so do all who trust in them idolaters imitate and take on the characteristics of the idol like i said this is repeated in several places of the old testament and spiritually speaking these people idolaters are spiritually deaf and spiritually blind that's what Christ says to the, to, the, um, to the Pharisees with their love and making an idol of the law. He says, you are deaf and blind. Having eyes you can't see, having ears you can't hear. Your heart is not being changed by the truth of God's word. So in contrast with the gods of the Old Testament, the pagan gods, which were united with nature, the God of Israel was distinct from nature. These pagan gods, like I said, depended upon human worship, but the God of the Bible doesn't depend upon human worship. As a matter of fact, we depend upon him. And so being transcendent, being separate from nature, he cannot be manipulated. Whereas the gods could be manipulated through offerings and through food and through sacrifices and through worship. And you think through, remember the movie, The Clash of the Titans, where Zeus starts to lose his power because the people get frustrated with the gods of of Mount Olympus. And they stop worshiping. And as the people stop worshiping, Zeus has no power. So he has to send Perseus to resolve this problem. Our tendency is to recreate the God of the Bible made in our own image. Like these gods of the of the, of the ancient Near Eastern texts, they were made in the image of man. They were selfish, they were greedy, they were they 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 were driven by love for procreation, they were driven by selfishness, they were capricious in every aspect of the word. Describes us, doesn't it? So when they make these gods, they're essentially making themselves. Over again and worshiping themselves. And we have the tendency to do the same thing with the text of the Bible and make God more palatable because, well, I don't like the fact that the God of the Old Testament killed a bunch of babies in the flood. So I'm going to say that that's a myth. Didn't actually happen. Or I'm going to say, well, God of the New Testament is love. He is defined by love and he is not not, uh, judging God. He will not punish us. Because love is love. You've heard that term before, haven't you? What we're doing when we say those things is we're taking the God of the Bible and we're saying, I don't like this version I find here, so I'm going to recreate him in a way that he looks like me. And he thinks like me, and he acts like me, and he has the same standard of morality as me. And all of a sudden, we're no longer worshiping the God of the Bible. We're worshiping ourselves. We want a God that we can control. We want a God that is like us. And ultimately, idolatry is self-worship. It's a God that thinks like us and acts like us. And with all the gods of the ancient Near Eastern world, man was the center of their existence, the basis of their existence. And that is exactly what we do with the God of the Bible when we change his character and his person to say, I don't think God would be like that. So let me manipulate the text so it will fit with my social agenda. So it will fit with what I would like to have. This is the desire of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. When, God, when Satan comes to him and says, you will be like God. They, they want to be like God. And so in idolatry, we don't become like him. He becomes like us. And so an idol is... Like I said, whatever substitutes God in our lives, whatever changes the character and person of God in our lives, whatever robs him of his glory. And so there are several examples, and I'm not going to hit them all, and I don't, I'm not going to try to point individually at you and say, this is your idol in your life, because you know what your idols are, and I know what my idols are. They're all different, and we all struggle with them. Sometimes they're the same. But for an example, legalism. Legalism is a form of idolatry, because legalism says that the, through what I do here, By obeying this list of rules, the list of rules becomes the litmus test for holiness. And now all of a sudden, because I have obeyed these rules, God is in my debt. God owes me a blessing. I lost my wallet because I didn't tithe. I found $20 in my pocket, and I know that's because I gave an offering on Sunday. See how that's working? We're making God a a tool to accomplish what we want. And in these modern times, idolatry appears in more non literal forms in the ancient Near Eastern world. It is obvious as Ezekiel has this vision in Ezekiel chapter twelve through fourteen of the temple just before the exile. The vision takes him into the corner of the corner of the, um, of the temple and it bears, bores a hold, and he goes into the temple and he sees in the temple all of these abominations, the abominations in that text are the idols, and they 're worshiping all of these different idols and It's very real. It's very literal, idolatry, physical idols there. But you know what's interesting? The nation of Israel never stopped worshiping Yahweh. They just worship Yahweh alongside of all the other idols. It wasn't that they woke up one day and said, you know what, I think I'm gonna worship Baal instead of God. No, it's they add Baal into the worship of God. And it's not that they woke up one day and said, you know what, I think we're gonna start worshiping Molech and we're going to leave behind Yahweh religion. No. They add it all in. They continue worshiping God at the same time they're worshiping themselves. And so in idolatry, it's always the same. We always end up mixing worship of God with worship of ourselves. It is a God that we are comfortable with that we can manipulate and that we can control. So an illustration of this would be in the Dominican Republic... There are no manufacturers of vehicles. You have to import every single car. And every single car that gets imported has a big yellow sticker because there's only one importation company. It's called Seaboard Marine. And so this sticker, I'm serious, it's about that size. And it's bright yellow, and it says Seaboard Marine with a date and the, the shipping information and all that stuff. And so in order to ship a car from the United States to the Dominican Republic, it has to be five years old or newer. So what you very commonly see are cars that drive around with this sticker on it for five, six, seven years. As a matter of fact, just before we came back, I saw a 2003 Toyota Corolla with a very faded Seaboard Marine sticker on the side of it. The first thing I would do is rip that thing off because it's irritating. I can't look out a window with a giant sticker in my way. But that sticker stays because it's a status symbol. It's saying I can buy a car. I have enough money to buy a car that has been recently imported and it speaks, it screams in bright yellow letters to everyone, I am wealthy. I'm of a social status where I can afford this thing. Now, I'm saying, I'm not saying that having a vehicle is sin. Definitely not. But sin enters when you find your value and your identity in the material thing. And so, parking on this prosperity for a moment here, prosperity or wealth should be viewed as a gift from God in the same way that the miracle of manna was given to the Hebrews. Our problem is that we struggle to understand what it actually means to depend upon God for our daily bread because we find our security in our bank accounts instead of our relationship with the Lord. In reality, everything we have is a gift from God. We are stewards, not of our own riches, but of his riches. And that is for the purpose of serving God really with what is his to begin with. And so the mentality of this creates an interesting conundrum. The more money you give, or the more money you have, the more you can give. So the more money that you have, the more money you can give. But the more you give, the less you have. So in not allowing wealth to become an idol, we should view it as a gift from God so that we can help others. And therefore, we should sewer it wisely in order to be able to help more. It comes in and it goes out. God blesses, and by God blessing me, I bless others. And all of a sudden, you become, instead of defined by your bank account, you become defined by your serving of the Lord with what he has given you. And I know that this church has done in the past and presently has done a phenomenal job with that. I have watched people do that over and over and over with ourselves and with other missionaries and it's, it's just phenomenal seeing it. But at the same time, wealth in our day and age, in our society, the United States of America, in the American dream has a strong tendency to become an idol. And so Israel's problem was trying to worship God and themselves at the same time. And as a parent, I don't want my children to repeat my mistakes. I don't want them to view church as something that can be offered up on the altar of sports, like I did when I was a teenager, where church takes a second place to organize sports or club ball. We can even be idolaters in our worship service. We can make traditions or a style of worship, something that we have always done, or even a space we are in, the focus of worship. And at that point, Personal experience becomes elevated to the point where we are now worshiping for our personal experience and we have forgotten the one we're supposed to be worshiping. We've forgotten the reason why we've gathered because we're so focused on the joy and the experience of gathering. Your idols may be your money, your idols may be your kids, your car. For me, it's an 18 to 20 foot center console bay boat that I've been dreaming about since I was 15 years old. You know what yours are, and I know what mine are. And at the end of the day, you can't worship a God, or you can't worship God of the Bible and your idols at the same time. Doing so will leave you just like your idols, blind and deaf spiritually. You are what you worship. And so when we look at this, how do we feed idolatry? It starts first off with identifying idolatry in our own hearts, We identify where we are weak. We identify what is distracting us and what takes us away from true worship and what takes us away from being being created in the image of Christ and being a transformed creature. What takes us and what distracts us in this process of progressive sanctification? So we first identify it. The next thing we do is we crucify it. We crucify the old idolatrous self. And then we conform ourselves to the image of Christ. It's exactly what Paul says over and over. 2 Corinthians 5.17, he says, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. Colossians 3, don't lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self. You put this off. You put off that old idolatrous self with his practices, and you have put on the new self, which being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. And then finally, Romans 12, we see says, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So as believers, we have been called to imitate our our Savior. We've been called to imitate our God. This is from the very beginning of scripture. And we look at Leviticus chapter 20, 18 and 20, both in the several sections throughout Leviticus, God tells the nation of Israel, I'm giving you this law and I'm calling you saying, be ye holy for I am holy. And then we come to 1 Peter, and Peter says, Be ye holy, for God is holy. The purpose of our existence is the glory of God. And the way that we do that is through imitating Him, and through worshiping Him, and through giving Him that glory, and not robbing a single part of it. So we always conform, we always reflect. Every single one of us, we always conform, we always reflect, we always imitate. We always become that which we worship. So what are you going to reflect? Are you going to reflect or are you going to worship something that is in the world and mix that with your worship of God? Or are you going to imitate and put on that new creature that is created after the image of its creator? You're going to put on that new man. That's essentially the challenge that we have. It's called progressive sanctification. It's a battle, it's a it's a struggle. And praise the Lord that one day we'll be free from it. But so long as we're here on this earth, we will continue to battle it. Don't give up in the fight of killing your old self. Don't give up in the fight of slaying your idols. Don't become your idols. Don't become spiritually deaf. Don't become spiritually blind. Be sensitive to God's word. Now, if you're here today and you have not accepted Christ as your savior, if you have not not converted to Christ and made him the Lord of your life, there's no way you can do anything other than worship yourself until you humble yourself and you come before him and you say, I am tired of this. I'm sick of this. Save me. Crying out like the thief on the cross. Save me. Because as long as you are in your sin, you are a slave to your sin. As long as you are living a life in rebellion against God, you are a slave to that rebellion. You can't conform to the image of Christ. You can't conform. You can't be holy like God is holy. It is only his righteousness placed upon us that we can even accomplish this. We can even do this. And so I challenge you to consider that. Believer, what are you worshipping? How what are you imitating? What are you reflecting? It's either the world or Christ. Let's pray. Gracious Lord and Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the way that it challenges us. Lord, I thank you for loving us while we're still sinners. You sent Christ to die for us, to redeem us from our idolatrous ways. Father, thank you. Help us, Lord. This is something we can't do on our own. We can't sanctify ourselves. It's the Holy Spirit doing it through us and us being submissive to him. So, Father, help us, change us, transform us, conform us to your image. We ask it things in the name of Christ. Amen.